everyone. I'm Delilah Jones, and you are listening to Imagine Publicity on Air, where I interview a variety of guests like authors, activists, and artists interspersed with occasional marketing tips for businesses, individuals, and nonprofits. You can connect with me through ImaginePublicity.com or any of the social media platforms. Today, I'm taking you with me in a red 57 Chrysler 300C, fins and all, for a look into one of the most high-profile murder cases of its time, set against the mid-century glamour of Hollywood, Las Vegas, and Palm Springs. Satin Pumps, the moonlit murder that mesmerized the nation is a true crime memoir written by screenwriter and author Steve Kosarev, who is my guest today. Welcome aboard, Steve. I hear, I hear this is your first true crime book. Tell us a bit about your background as a writer, and why did you choose this case to write about? Well, my background was in television, culture, and archiving. Basically, the history of uh, selling and marketing television sets and the culture surrounding repairing them from the 1950s and 60s. I had written a book uh, Wended to the Future that was published about 15 years ago by Chronicle Books. And the book did fairly well. And I started to look at some other things to write about, did that, uh, was not successful in selling those to Chronicle. And then started to look at some uh, a documentary that spun out of Wended to the Future and uh, called TV Man, The Search for the Last Independent Dealer. And uh, I actually raised some funding. I wrote, produced, and directed this documentary, shot it mostly in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it came out pretty well. I have some music licensing issues that have to be taken care of before it can be released. But I really enjoyed it. It was probably, up to the time of writing the Satin Pumps, it was probably the most enjoyable two weeks of my life on location. And it was hectic. I mean, I lost weight. If you ever want to go on a diet, uh, direct a film. Uh, that'll do it. And uh, so I had, was looking at another project to write about and had a friend who was uh, a friend of a producer, a former producer on Law and & Order. And I thought, my God, this is a great connection. And I'll write something, you know, that he might be interested in. So I had three things, and one of them was something I'd been tossing about for years, uh, writing about my former family doctor, Bernard Finch. And this was a famous murder case, mid-century Los Angeles, 1959. And he conspired with his medical assistant girlfriend, Carol Tragoff, to murder his wife. And uh, so I actually sat down, put pen to paper, and I actually created this initially as a 10 to 12 episode uh, television series. I wrote a treatment for it. And as things are in Hollywood, uh, I had it delivered to the producer, and he was too busy with his own uh, things. He had sort of gone off on another avenue and didn't have any interest. Well, now here I'm holding this treatment, and I thought, you know, I think there's a book in here. So I uh, did a lot more research. Uh, delve into the characters, did genealogical research, and uh, wrote uh, a manuscript. And uh, within days of finishing it, I really lucked out. Wild Blue Press picked it up 
and uh, you know, three months later it was published uh, in February, and here we are about three months later after that. I, you know, I, I I never cease to plug Wild Blue Press. I think they are are just a great organization, and especially for authors. Um, Anybody out there who's got a book under their arm ought to at least try to submit it and, and get it get it going. You know, in, in reading this book, not only is it a thrilling story and with a lot of crazy twists and turns, but there's also a cast of characters that, you know, came out of Hollywood casting as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Maybe you could just give a brief rundown of the characters involved in, in this murder and uh, in your book. Well, the primary, the lead character would be Dr. Bernard Finch. Uh, he was in his early forties, very handsome, from a wealthy, prominent family in Covina, which is a small town uh, in uh, eastern Los Angeles County, about 20 miles away. And the Finch family had a long history, going back about 50 years in the town. Uh, Dr. Finch's grandfather was one of the founders of the city of Covina. And uh, Dr. Finch's family, uh, he was the only boy out of uh, three children. He had two younger sisters. And he was kind of their golden boy. They saw him as their next uh, step up on the social ladder, I believe. Dr. Finch's father was an optometrist, but as I mentioned in the book, he wasn't a real doctor. And they, I believe that they had set Dr. Finch's path at an early age and uh, to become a medical doctor. And he graduated from high school very early, uh, went on to a local college. He was very close to his family and uh, worked at a number of uh, medical clinics and hospitals in the eastern San Gabriel Valley. Uh, he ended up partnering with his brother-in-law, Dr. Franklin Gordon, uh, building the West Covina Medical Clinic. And the convergence, their stars aligned. It couldn't have, they couldn't have been any more lucky. Here we are in uh, post-war America. The, the booming suburbs are going up in the eastern San Gabriel Valley. Uh, they're turning Garvey Avenue, which became the footprint for the San Bernardino Freeway, which would whisk everybody to San Bernardino and on to Palm Springs. And uh, Dr. Finch and Dr. Gordon buy lots right off of Garvey Boulevard because they know the freeway is going to be there. They build West Covina Medical Clinic, open the doors, and it was like shooting fish in a barrel, as I say in the book. Uh, there were, uh, as people moved in, they needed me obviously medical assistance, and so they went to the West Covina Medical Clinic. And what was interesting is that uh, though there were other uh, doctors in their practice, Finch and Gordon were the only ones who owned the medical clinic. And with the success of the medical clinic, they ended up opening a hospital uh, in 1958, and uh, that was just as successful. Um, Dr. Finch had been married uh, early on, had three children, and uh, he met his wife, Barbara, his second wife, Barbara. She be was a patient of his and eventually became his medical assistant. And around this time, their affair began. And they actually ended up living next door to each other in Baldwin Park. And uh, I'd like to know how they orchestrated buying home, you know, Finch buying a home right next to Barbara and her husband, but they managed to do so. And eventually the affair became, you know, hot and heavy. The, uh, Barbara uh, and Finch uh, decided that they were going to live together. 
and uh, Barbara ended up divorcing her husband, Lyle. And uh, eventually, she and Finch got married. Uh, he built a hilltop home for them in West Covina on three lots. And their marriage was, uh, you know, happy for the time being. Uh, it didn't stop Finch from uh, wandering eyes. He had been using the West Covina Medical Clinic as his dating pool. And the women, uh, you know, in the 1950s, Finch was a real catch, handsome, wealthy. He was very charming. And uh, the women in the medical clinic, uh, you know, jostled uh, to be his next conquest. And, you know, Barbara was aware of these. But, uh, you know, until Carol Tragoff came along, she wasn't worried. Uh, Carol Tragoff was a, a 19-year-old young woman. Uh, she was in an unhappy marriage. She was married to a bodybuilder. Uh, she was not in love with him. She had started to date older men. She had a proclivity for men twice her age. She came into the West Committee Medical Clinic for a job and was hired as a receptionist. And a few months later, uh, due to her abilities at uh, being able to, uh, to have like a photographic memory and retain facts, she got hired as Finch's medical assistant. And as she later told reporters, their relationship didn't begin. She knew Finch was involved with other people. In fact, he was dating as a nurse at the time, even though he was married to Barbara. And so Finch was persistent. He asked Carol out on drinks, and um, they eventually uh, hooked up. And, uh, you know, Carol fell in love with him. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, Barbara sort of stood in the way, uh, between her and Finch's relationship. So they were planning what to do. Uh, at the same point, Barbara had enough, and she filed for a divorce. And at the time, community property laws in California didn't exist. So a spouse, if they could prove adultery on the part of their husband or wife, could theoretically inherit or get everything in a divorce proceeding. And Finch at this point was worth what today would be about $6 million at that point, and he didn't want to lose anything. Uh, and so they needed a way to deal with Barbara. Uh, he didn't want to get a divorce and have to deal with that, and so this is where they started to formulate a plan what to do about Barbara. What to do about Barbara. You know, it's it's not interesting, but I think – there was a time in my life that I've been working with victims of domestic violence. And, you know, this is kind of a classic situation where a husband or a wife wants out of a marriage and there's either child support or, you know, marital assets that need to be divided and one party or the other doesn't want to give up their share. And then, they start formulating a plan just like you're talking about. So can you go into what some of these plans were? I know, you know, they had a few that were bungled, um, you know, before they were able to carry out the murder. But tell us a little bit about those plans that didn't work out. Well, there was initially there wasn't any physical or verbal abuse in their marriage that I can find. But as Finch felt frustrated because he knew that Barbara might end up with everything, and she actually had proof. She had hired a private detective to follow Finch and Carol. 
And Finch and Carol had a series of apartments, love nest as they would have been called then, that they maintained. And, one, and at least one of the apartments was bugged, and she had recordings of the two of them. So that sort of put Finch and Carol in a bind because there was a very real chance that she could, you know, in a divorce proceeding, end up with everything. And he would go over to the house occasionally and get in fights with her that became physically abusive and threaten her. And he actually didn't have much of a a self-censorship. He would actually say what he was thinking of doing, which was murdering her. And she later told her divorce attorney that she did not want to get in a car with Finch, that she was afraid he would take her out to the desert or up in the mountains, kill her, and leave her body there. And uh, Finch and Carol uh, came up with a plan initially. And I believe that they came up with this idea after seeing the film, uh, the 1953 film Angel Face, where Jean Peters sends her... uh, uh, stepmother over a, a ravine in the family car, and uh, that I think was their initial plan. They were what they wanted to do was uh, something similar to that. But at the same time, the divorce proceeding was getting very close, and Carol Tregoff was afraid of being named a co-respondent in this divorce. So she and Finch thought the best thing for her to do was quit her job, get out of town, and move to Las Vegas, which is what she did. And she ended up working as a cocktail waitress at the Sands Hotel. And they, they, they sort of put their one plan on hold about putting Barbara in the car and stunning over a ravine next to their cliff. Uh, they were going to hire a hitman to do away with Barbara. And what sort of uh, the question that I came up with is why, you know, the Sands Hotel was mob-connected at the time. Why didn't she ask somebody there she could have hired a professional hitman through the through the sands, probably, but she didn't. They, I think, they were too cheap, and uh, they were not street smart criminals. And uh, they started uh, this plan to do away with Barbara with a hitman, uh, and it was a bad plan from the beginning. Uh, Carol asked around and finally uh, met this guy who turned out to be a con man. He was no murderer, but she didn't know that. He did a good job of convincing her that he could, that he could take out Barbara for them. They agreed on the price. She paid him half up front. They put him on a plane to Los Angeles. Uh, he was drunk, as usual, and once he got there, he sobered up, and he partied, and then he returned to Las Vegas, and, uh, you know, uh, he assured Carol when he came back that he had done the job, and she called Finch. And just to double-check, he calls his home, and his wife and Barbara answers the phone. So obviously, the Jack Cody, the name of this uh, uh, con man, did not take out Barbara. So uh, uh, he says, well, I, I shot somebody. And uh, so... Uh, you know, he said he uh, used a shotgun, he put the, the woman's body in the trunk, and that was it. And Finch assumes that it was uh, Barbara's friend that she had been staying with. And he says, you shot the wrong woman, and uh, you've got to go back and, and do this right. And so Cody promised to do that again. They went through the same thing. They put him on a plane. He uh, was drunk. Uh, he partied in Los Angeles and came back. But this time, uh, he picked up his belongings when he came back. And he got the hell out of Las Vegas and went back to Minnesota where he was wanted on a ch- uh, check forgery. So now uh, Carol and Finch are left holding the bag. 
they're out about 1500 bucks. Barbara hasn't been murdered. So they go back to the original plan A. And uh, let me ask you a question, just just a real quick question here. How how much control do you think Finch had over Carol? Being the fact that you know she is pretty young and he is pretty experienced and and quite a bit older than her. I mean, was was she very mature for her age, or do you think he had some kind of control over this whole plan? As I said in the book, she was both kind of Juliet and Mata Hari. Uh, she was uh, somewhat naive and so on, but she was also determined. And I think she is the one who actually uh, sort of orchestrated the murder. She was the one who motivated Finch to do what he did. He sort of was led by her. And, you know, it's the old case about men being led, you know, the nose by women. And, uh, and uh, that, I think, happened with her. Uh, I don't think... You know, if it had been somebody else or she wasn't in the picture, I don't think uh, Barbara Finch would have ever been murdered. It probably would have just gone through a divorce proceeding. But I think Carol was whispering in his ear, and uh, I think she's the one who was actually the motivator behind this murder. She got Finch to act. And um, she, uh, uh, one evening on the early evening of July 18, 1959, after she got off work at the Sands Hotel, uh, she drove back to the apartment where Finch was staying in Las Vegas. She picked him up, and then they drove to West Covina. And in court documents and the trials that followed after, she uh, they always claimed that they were going there to speak to Barbara about getting a divorce in Las Vegas. And the uh, situation is you don't drive, you know, arrive at 1130 at night to talk to somebody. And Barbara had, uh, you know, she had all the aces up her sleeve. There was no way that, uh, you know, they could talk her out of that because she would end up with everything. So they ended up driving, uh, you know, to uh, to the Finch home in West Covina, and Barbara was not there. She had been out playing tennis and had dinner with some friends. Then she drove in about uh, 1130 that evening, and uh, that's when all hell broke loose. So... Okay, you have you have two parties who are basically not street criminals. They're they're wanting an end result. So they find out that they're going to have to carry out the plan and do it themselves, right? Mhm. Yes. So how did this all come about that night? How did this murder happen? Well, their plan was to neutralize her. Uh, they were going to surprise her uh, and then inject her with secondol to knock her out and then inject her with an air bubble to murder her. They would place her body in the car, and in this beautiful 1957 uh, Chrysler 300C, it was Gauguin Red, a convertible. It was the fastest production model out of Detroit that year. They were going to send Finch's beloved car with Barbara in it over the ravine next to the Finch home. And hopefully, uh, you know, the, the death would look like an, an accident, like she had missed, maybe she had a drink or two, you know, she had second all in her bloodstream if they did that. Maybe she took a sleeping pill driving home and uh, veered off, you know, uh, misjudged the driveway uh, into the garage and then went over the ravine. That's what the, their plan was. Um, 
But for whatever reason, Finch's anger got the best of him right as he was sneaking up behind Barbara to, to neutralize her. And he had a gun on him, and he hit her so hard behind the head he caused a concussion. And this was as she was getting out of the car. She was momentarily dazed. She was not murdered. Uh, she was not even neutralized at that point. She managed to struggle with him over the gun. He ended up hitting her over a second time, and as she was laying in the garage, prior to that she had called out their nanny's name, and they had a Swedish au pair by the name of Marianne. She screamed out Marianne's name, and she was in the home. Uh, she had just put the kids to bed, and she was curling her hair, and she heard Barbara scream her name and ran out to the garage. Well, now the whole you know, Finch's whole plan had changed. Now he had to deal with a second person. And as Barbara's laying in, Marie Ann bursts into the garage. She flips the light on, and Finch lunges at her and knocks her head into the wall. He hits her so hard, knocks her head so many times and so hard in the wall that it causes an indent in the plaster. Uh, and uh, orders Marie Ann uh, into uh, the back seat of the car. He actually fires the gun as a warning shot. She gets in the back seat of the car. He drags Barbara into the front seat, and now his plan's altered. He's going to send both women over the ravine. And he gets into the driver's seat, and he's fumbling, looking for the keys. He can't find the keys. And he has Barbara's purse, so he dumps all the contents on the garage floor. And then it dawns on him the headlights are on the on in the car and the radio is playing which means that the keys in the ignition were was all the time so once he does start, once he realizes that at that same point uh barbara gets up out of the car and bolts and runs starts running down the driveway and he gives chase and as that happens marie ann jumps out of the car and runs into the house to call the police as finch is chasing barbara down the driveway she breaks one of her satin pumps and now she's actually running in one high heel down this driveway to her in-laws, which conveniently Finch's parents lived on the other side of the driveway. And she's running to, their, to seek refuge. And just as she starts to go down these seven dirt steps into their yard, Finch shoots her in the back. She collapses in the yard and dies. Well, the plan worked <laughs> in, in so many ways. I guess the plan worked, and, and they reached their goal. Um, but obviously, they didn't get away with it. Now, you know, I understand there were three murder trials before anything anyone was convicted of, of murdering Barbara. Can you tell us why two trials ended in hung juries is what happened? And... Um, what happened in these trials that it worked out that way? Well, Finch was quite an actor. Uh, like I said, he was charming and handsome. And when he, uh, you know, the trials, uh, the first trial became sort of the the, the mid-century trial of its time. Uh, uh, it was the O.J. Simpson trial is what I would compare it to. It had a lot of press. Uh, the Finches had uh, some friends in the media uh, they were members of the Los Angeles Tennis Club. Uh, Gil Patrick Jackson, who was pr the producer of Perry Mason, her husband was president of the tennis club. And uh, they had gone to the hearing in West Covina. They had gone to the first trial. 
And uh, it was so big that Life Magazine sent uh, crime author Eric Ambler to cover it for Life Magazine. Dorothy Kilgallen uh, on her uh, from Monday through Friday before her What's My Line panel duties, she'd fly out on a red eye and be at the Los Angeles courtroom. She covered it for the Hearst Syndicate. Uh, the very first day of the trial, she brought along her friends Clifton Webb and Sonia Henney, the ice skater. And it was really a big media circus. Uh, they were in the largest courtroom. They had to move because there were so many people and reporters covering this. Um, and uh, the press loved Carol uh, Tregoff. She was very photogenic. Uh, she was a Kardashian of her time. Uh, they couldn't interview Finch and Carol enough. Uh, they had access that they would never now have, but uh, it was quite a circus. And so uh, the, the biggest day was when Finch was going to get on the witness stand and tell how his wife died. He always claimed it was an accident, that they struggled over the gun and it went, it went off, that he had thrown it away. When it hit the ground, the gun discharged, and that's how Barbara got shot in the back. So while he's telling his story, uh, a couple of the women in the jury are just in tears. They're just crying. They're bawling. Uh, they can't believe this. He's such a good actor. And uh, it really looked like there's a good chance they might get off due to this. But uh, behind closed doors in the jury room, uh, it was a mixed jury and somewhat unusual for uh, uh, Los Angeles and probably even the country is that two of the jurors – uh, were uh, men of color. They had an African-American man and a Latino man on there. And unfortunately for them, there was also a white woman who was very racist and probably the, just the side of having a Klan membership. And they all knocked heads. And uh, she claimed that there was uh, physical threats against her. They were going to pick up a chair and break the window and throw her out. And this went on, and the two men actually decided at that point, you know, you know they were going to use their power, and they actually caused a deadlock of the jury. And so uh, there was a mistrial, and I'm not sure that Finch and Carroll ever really knew that the only reason they had their lives spared initially is due to racism on the jury. So now a second trial was scheduled, and unfortunately for Finch and Carroll, uh, the judge on there uh, was the uh, their defense teams tried to keep uh, the judge Leroy Dawson off the bench, and Dawson had a history of a, a long history of convictions, but I'm not quite sure to this day why they were so adamant uh, of having him not judge uh, this trial. And uh, they tried to have him removed from the bench every which way. And I think uh, he didn't get removed. And I think at this point, Dawson was really incensed and he was going to show them he meant business. And at the end of that trial, he actually turned to the jury and said, I believe they're guilty and you should too, and you should vote accordingly. And, you know, every, the courtroom was, you know, up in arms. I mean, this was just unheard of for a judge to say that to a jury. And um, and though uh, Finch's defense attorney, Grant Cooper, objected, and he, the only thing he ended up was being cited by, you know, with contempt two or three times because of that. And ultimately that trial ended up in a mistrial. So now they're at a third trial, 
And at this point, the, the trial has lost some of its luster. People are tired. This was um, now they were into it at least a year into this trial. And so uh, everybody was focused, um, and they wanted to get to a deadline. And so everybody was paying attention. And ultimately, uh, the third jury just didn't buy Finch's story about the gun being discharged. And they actually had gone back to the Finch home a second time, unlike the other two uh, juries. And then they went and tried to recreate the positions that Finch claimed he and Barbara were in when the gun went off. And no matter how they contorted and twisted their bodies, they couldn't get into the position that Finch claimed. And that's ultimately what, how Finch and Carol got convicted. And uh, I believe that uh, you know, their convictions uh, were fair. Uh, they, Finch, uh, they were both convicted of conspiracy. Uh, and Carol didn't get first-degree uh, murder, only because she hadn't touched the gun. But they got her on conspiracy. So her penalty could have been just as bad as Finch's. They could have both faced the uh, gas chamber at that time. It was really... Uh, an option at that point. Uh, uh, Carol Chessman, the rapist, had been uh, finally executed after 12 years for for rape. He hadn't even murdered anybody. So Finch and Carol had murdered somebody, so there was a very likely chance they could go to the gas chamber. Well, why do you think they they took the death penalty off the table and gave them life instead? You know... Um, it's, it could be maybe just the jury thought, you know, they may have been looking back at the, the things and thought that, you know, this wasn't as cold-blooded a murder as, uh, you know, that, that qualified that. So uh, ultimately they did not uh, get the death penalty, but they did get life sentences. And Finch, when he, upon hearing that, he was relieved because he really thought he was going to die in the gas chamber. Carol had a different view. She turned and, and told reporters, she said, I'm going to be an old woman before I get out of here. And she was worried about that. The, the death penalty never seemed to even cross her mind. And it, w- it was really likely she could have gotten that, but she was more worried about the life sentence. And ultimately, uh, you know, they did serve time. Uh, Finch, I think, got 11 years. She, Carol, spent eight. When she got out in 1969, she changed her name but she went back to her old stomping grounds, and she became worked in the records department in her community hospital in Covina. Uh, all the employees there knew who she was, but they would not discuss or ask her questions about the case. She worked there for decades and was promoted and retired as the manager of the records department. She uh, is in her early 80s now. She's still alive, and I believe she's still living in the area. Uh, there have been reported sightings over the years by people who knew her, like her ex-husband's sister, who ran into her at a supermarket. And uh, she uh, apparently goes to a particular beauty salon in Covino, or at least did a few years ago. Uh, Finch uh, ended up getting out in the early 70s. Uh, he was hired as an x-ray technician in uh, a small town in Missouri. He tried to get his medical license back there, but didn't. He eventually came back to California and got his medical license back in 1984. He moved to Rancho Mirage near Palm Springs, and he worked the last 11 years of his life as a medical doctor and then died of natural causes. 
Uh, he is buried in the same cemetery that my parents are. Well, and, and that is the connection that he was your family doctor. He was our family doctor. And uh, my mother, uh, I remember decades after the fact, uh, before she passed away, she goes, I knew something was going on between them. I saw the way he looked at her. And I thought, well, yeah, that's easy to say in hindsight. Uh, I do remember them. Uh, he was our doctor till I was about uh, seven uh, years old. And I remember the, the exam rooms, uh, the swinging saloon-style doors to the exam room, and Carol hanging off behind Finch, you know, taking rapid notes as he would talk. And uh, he delivered me the oldest of my three younger sisters. He was scheduled to deliver the, my middle sister. But at that point, uh, Dr. Gordon had had enough of, Shins, uh, of Finch's shenanigans. And what I think they did is I think they sent a letter out to all the patients saying that Dr. Finch is cutting back on his day-to-day -day, uh, patient duties. He's, going, he's focusing on surgery. You're going to have to choose another doctor here. And ultimately, my mother ended up with Dr. Gordon as the family doctor. He delivered my sister, Debbie, who was the first baby born at the West Covina Hospital. Uh, even though Finch was still around there, he uh, uh, did not, uh, Barbara, was, or death was still off about nine months in the future uh, when Finch's duties were switched and my sister was born in the hospital. Well, that's an interesting connection. And one of the other things I thought was very interesting is the fact that, and I don't want you to give this away, is the fact that the murder weapon has never been found. And, oh, it has? Oh, it has? No, 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 it hasn't. You're correct. It, oh, no, it, it hasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. So I, I just want readers or readers, yeah, potential readers out there to know that your theory about what happened to the murder weapon is at the end of the book. So, again, you have something to look forward to, one of the secrets. <laughs> yeah, and also there was a, a mystery about uh, where Barbara Finch was buried, too, which I think I solved. And uh, that's at the very end in, in the book. Uh, right. The, the police had bungled this case, uh, and I don't think that they looked at obvious things. Uh, there, uh, there's a major piece of evidence that they did not find that they were presented, which I talk about in the book. And the police actually lied on the witness stand about acquiring this evidence. And um, uh, there's also uh, one of Carol Tragoff's uh, uh, alibis about where she was. She claims she never saw what happened to Barbara when Finch was struggling with her and shot her. And her major story was that she hid in this bougainvillea bush on the Finch property for four to five hours from the time uh, that they were up there to the time that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Finch ran off and was on his way back to Las Vegas. And uh, I actually found a very early instance of a report where she says what she did. And it's interesting that the police never located this, and I've never heard read of any other instance where anybody else has found this, but it was just a small article early on. Probably could have been Carol Tragoff's first interview by a reporter. But I believe she actually states what happened, and I talk about that in the book. Well, 
I want listeners to know that there are a lot more details in the book, for sure, and I encourage you and, and urge you to get a copy, read it for yourself, and find out. And you can buy Satin Pumps at all of the online bookstores, retailers, or ask for it in your local bookstore. They, they can get it for you. Or you can also order it directly from wildbluepress.com. So, Steve... Is there anything that sticks in your mind that you would like listeners to take away today about the case or about the book? Um, Well, they might get some more information. I actually uh, created a little nine-minute video with uh, clips from my family's home movies and photos of the Finch case chronologically. And if you watch these, you get a sense of uh, the mid-century life, and you also get a sense of the case by watching uh, these clips. And I've got some really great background music in there. And it's on YouTube. Uh, if they just search Satin Pumps True Crime on YouTube or my name, uh, they can find the video. And it, it turned out pretty nice. And uh, I, I think that will give them a really good feel for the book, a visual feel. Well, I'll be sure to put a link to that video in the show notes so that people can just go directly there and see it. Now, do you have a website? Uh, I have a lot of social media sites. I don't have a particular website for the book. Uh, If they go at Satin Pumps uh, for Twitter or Facebook.com backslash Satin Pumps, we have a lot of photos. There's a lot of information about the book. Uh, I delve deep into the background of the characters. I did genealogical research. And so you'll get a backstory why these people did what they did and where they came from. And I really did, uh, you know, doing the genealogical research, found out a lot of information, particularly about Barbara Finch, uh, why she ended up marrying Finch and uh, her, her reasons behind that. Her, her history is really telling uh, on that point. To me, that's that's the most important part are the characters, number one. And then, you know, going into the psychology of why did you do what you did? And and was there something in your background? Was it this? Was it that? And so I'm happy to say that it's quite interesting to read all of this. And you did an excellent, excellent research job for sure. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And, And thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and i hope you please follow imagine publicity on air when it wherever you're listening to this particular podcast um and we'll have a lot more author interviews and a lot of other different type of content content coming up for the future so please join us again and thanks again steve my pleasure